<laughs> it was one of my favorite shows when I was a kid, though, actually. The Who's the Boss? It was pretty funny with Tony Danza. But it was Paul. In Romans 6, he starts moving everything towards... He's getting. He's starting to combine theology with with practicality or you know, real life. So this becomes what's called practical theology. Like, how do we live this, and what should we do with our new life that we have been given? And so Paul is going to start answering these questions here in the next few chapters. And so we move into this part that for everybody, this is a very real topic because we are surrounded by sin every day. We are surrounded with opportunities or temptations or tests. How you want to look at it? every day of our lives to figure out how, how do we actually do what we say we believe that we are Christians, right? Because if we say we're Christians, that means we're new people, new creations. And so we start changing and start going away from, we'll say, the sin that's over here. We start moving over this way. And we have to live out our lives. And so, because you know, we know, we've all probably experienced it, that, that people are watching you. As soon as you say you're a Christian, People are now watching you closer to see what you do in those situations. And so Paul is making the case here that we don't even need to look backwards from our, to our past because we're looking forward to our future. And so the question I have here is, is, is what a job adds, and we're going to get to that in a minute, right? Job adds medieval theology about whales and Templar castles had to do with our faith in our, in our daily lives as Christians, right? So we're going to answer those questions through the, as we go through the text. You get a little insight into how my mind links things together as I learn new information about all kinds of different things. Um, that's the way, just my, the way my mind works. When I hear different things, I listen to a lot of different things, and I watch a bunch of different shows, a lot of history shows. And so you start having these illustrations pop up for us, and you start learning how particularly like the medieval church or the ancient church viewed things and what they used as stories or ways to teach how to live, right? Because... That hasn't changed all through, all through the eons. People have to deal with sin and how to live with it, how to get around it, and how to get away from it. Right? And so that's what we see. That We see that people from way back have to deal, deal with the same stuff that we do. Obviously, there's little differences for certain things on how things are done, but it still comes down to sin. So we're going to go ahead and read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10 to open this up. And we'll go through the rest of it as we go through the outline. So here's what it says here. Paul says, and he's continuing on this, this conversation from chapter 5. He says, what should then we say? Should we continue on in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father... So we too may walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not again, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the death he the life he lives, excuse me, he lives to God. And this whole thing, 
I don't know if you guys want to cut it out of your Bible or whatever and stick it on your your mirror, your refrigerator, whatever it is. But this helps us understand every day of our newness of life that we have through Christ. Right? It's a good reminder of, for us to have this idea. And so here's the main point is that God provides you with a new life through Jesus Christ. And this should give us, a, give us hope and peace. Because we don't have to worry about the pressures really anymore of living in sin. We're no longer who we used to be. No matter what other people would like to make us out to be, of you used to be this or that way, we are now no longer that way. Right? We grow. People grow. Right? We watch a movie. A lot of times if it happens, an hour and a half, somebody goes from having some kind of issue, some kind of problem, and they move through the story. And by the end of it, they grow. Right? We see this. And of course, it's an hour and a half movie. Sometimes they take place over months or days or years, depending on how they do the story. But we see this taking place, and that's how our lives are too. We change. That's the good thing about us, is we get to change. God does not change, though, because we are moving from being anti-God to being towards God. Right? We're being in, made in the likeness of Christ, and so we move that way. We change into being more Christ-like. Right? We're like a butterfly. We get to be the caterpillar. Nobody likes caterpillars, really, and until they become butterflies, they're like, oh, butterflies are beautiful. And that's how we are. Right? So chapter 5 here, because here's the first part, is the question is that who hired you, right? Because the question is who's the boss, so who hires you? And so chapter 5 is the core tenet of the Christ's mission. He came to restore life into his people. And then verse 6 is the plea for us to understand the price that has been paid and what it means for us as God's people. Right? He's moving and saying, look, this is what Jesus did. This is what it means, and this is what it means for you moving forward. This isn't just some... Like, cool, Jesus died for us. Okay, now what? Right? Because a lot of times people get saved. Maybe if you've experienced this, you get saved, you get baptized, and it's, what do I do now? Right? You have to be discipled. That's what Paul is doing here. He's discipling the church to say this is what it means. This is how we move our, forward and live our lives. And he's continuing this idea, addressing the very real battle of our new lives. Of now we have to have this enemy that we didn't think was an enemy. Because in our lives before Christ, sin was not seen as an enemy. It was just seeing what everybody else does. It's what we do. Because we're humans. We're people. Everybody does it. Everybody does these things. So it's not a big deal. But then all of a sudden when we get converted, you start looking at things through a different way. And now that sinful behavior, whatever it was you were doing before, is now different. It's wrong. It's against God. Because the Holy Spirit has taken over you and so your eyes have been opened. And everything you've been doing, or most of everything you've been doing, and maybe even the reasons you've been doing it for, they weren't, you weren't living for God, so it's wrong. And so when we're converted, we see things through God's point of view. We want to live according to His will. We are now motivated differently. And so we are freed from our punishment for sins by God's grace, right? That's what chapter 5 talks about. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But it's tough, right? Day to day, that's tough. We don't move to a Christian's only corner of the world. They don't have a little compound that we all move to up in the mountains somewhere and say, well, if you're a Christian, you move here, and there's nothing ever bad ever that happens here. And I guarantee even if we did that, people are people, and they would find a way to bring it in. Because right? that's just the way we are. This is what we are. Because we are tainted from sin. We are tainted from the fall. So it's just our inclination, unfortunately. Right? There's temptations and opportunities to sin all around us. And they differ for each of us. But again, the bottom line is that it's sin. There's no one sin worse than another. It's all sin against God. 
So if we trace Paul's thought process and, and, and possibly the question that, that to the Romans that he's asking, either they're asking him or most likely he's asking them, maybe because what he's heard and seen, he's asking them about living their new lives. Because remember, he's talking to the Jews and the, and the Gentiles at the same time, in the same letter. So Paul's really saying is we can't live a double life and we can't have the sin and the holy occupy the same space. It's not like we have a wall built up in our house. Like it's a two-story house. The Holy Spirit lives up here and the sin lives in the basement. And that's just, the way they, that's just the way they operate. Sin has to be completely kicked out of the whole house. It has to be kicked out of the neighborhood. <clears throat> right? And more importantly, though, we should not want or allow the sin to move back in once it's expelled. Once he gets, moves in, it's not like he can just stand at the door and say, Hey, let me in, let me in, let me in. No, you don't belong here anymore. Go somewhere else. Go away, right? And Paul gives us this understanding in verses 6 through 12 of chapter 6. He says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may be no longer enslaved to sin. We now have a power over sin that we don't need that anymore because something else is fulfilling what that sin, sinful behavior fulfills. Right? God is the one that fulfills that. He is filling that hole. And since a person who has died is freed from sin, we no longer have that need that connection. For if we die with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Right? Get rid of it. We don't need it. You, you get to realize, and it's, harder, it's easier said than done, right? Well, I get that. But you don't need to listen to the sin that's telling you to do whatever. And so your old self is crucified with Jesus. It's buried. Like Jesus out of the tomb, though, comes the new man or woman. We have been resurrected, right? When we baptize people, that's what we say. You've been, you know, newness of walk in the newness of life. You've been resurrected. That's what the, re that's what the baptism represents. It is your burial of the old person and the resurrection and renewal of the new person. Because this is, this is what the answer is of who hired you. God hired you. He hires you. He goes out and hires you. So Jesus paid for your ability to come into the kingdom. The Holy Spirit brought you in. Right? They headhunted you for a job to do. You were already predestined to do certain things. They've come out. You didn't need to spend hours looking through the classifieds or on the internet filling out resumes and hoping to get a phone call from somebody. They called you. They sent you the email. Hey, I have a great job opportunity for you. Like, sweet. I don't have to do any work. Because I get, I get emails all the time from them. Like, we think you'd be a good fit. Well, you didn't read my resume thing because clearly I'm not. But whatever. People are still looking actively for that because they're looking for people to fill jobs. And that's what God is doing. But He knows where you fit. He knows he has the perfect job for you almost regardless of your resume. And so God calls each of us to the HR headquarters and he gives us a job. He makes us an offer we can't refuse. And of course, sometimes with jobs, we're like, well, I don't know if I want this job. You know, I got to travel. I got to do this. I got to do that. So sometimes we know we're called, but we resist it to a point. But we can't just turn it off. We can't just say, no, thank you, God. He gets us to the point where he says, look, this is the best thing for you. Take the job. And you, we finally all acquiesce, right? Okay, yes, I'll take the job. That's how we get converted, right? That's the, the give and take where he doesn't violate our free will. 
He lets us choose still, but he's still saying, look, I'm going to keep bugging you till you do it. And so when you get a job, you get a boss, right? And sometimes you work with others that have more influence, whether it's good or bad influence is another story, right? So the question becomes, who do you obey? Or who do you work for, really? Right? So for the Jews that Paul is writing to in the, in, in the Roman church, obeying the law is still a very real thing. Right? They are like, we have the rules. We've got to follow the rules. But they're also under grace. Right? We know that grace is here. So, so which one do we obey? Which one are we listening to here? And so for the Gentiles, though, grace is all they've known. They're like, I don't want those rules. Christianity is easier because it's just grace. And so I have one rule, love God. Second rule, love your neighbor. That's it. It really, when you boil it down, though, that's what the tank, that's what everything, all the Jewish laws, that's what they are too. There's this, all the 613 laws are really just expositions on how to do those two things. So the law doesn't really go away, but we're not stuck with the law. We're not stuck to the law. Right? But it's this very real pull from the sin that exists in our lives, though, that happens. We have to have allegiance to God. We have our allegiance to God and we must obey God instead of obeying sin because God is powerful. And so God's voice has to be louder than the calling of sin. Right? Just like we sung, let your voice be louder. Let your voice be cleaner, clearer. Right? Let it be those things because that's who I need to listen to. That's who I work for, ultimately. You know, even Paul talks about when you work in Colossians 3.22, right? he says, work for the glory of God. Don't worry about man. Work because God gave you abilities and talents. And sometimes it's easy to get bogged down in working for the, the human you work for and be like, oh, I can be grumpy. But when you realize you're working for God and God has given you those positions, you're doing him a disservice by grumbling about your boss. And I'm learning that this last few months, right? So this is real, real talk in a sense. This is, I'm, I'm applying these things that I'm talking about. Right? And it's easier said than done, but it's needs to be done. But since Christmas is closed, right, we know the song, right, Santa Claus is coming to town. It's going to be playing. You're going to hear it. Right? We know the line. He knows. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. Right? And so the idea is for the kids to be good. And sometimes it's a scare tactic. So God doesn't need to scare you, right, because even sometimes religions and Christianity, Christians do the same thing where they think that Jesus is watching you. God is watching you all the time. And they use it as kind of a scare tactic. Now here's the thing. God knows what's going on. He's not ignorant. He just doesn't turn away. He doesn't do whatever, right? So again, that just is what it is. It's not meant to scare you. It's just meant to make you aware of what's going on. He is all-knowing. Because the other good thing is that you are forgiven. Right? When you act bad, quote-unquote, you're forgiven. Jesus died on the, sin, or on the cross for your sins. Past, present, and future. We don't have to keep going to the cross because we did something wrong today, right? We don't lose our salvation when we do something wrong. We have to keep going and asking for approval. Like Santa Claus, we know what happens if you're bad. What does Santa Claus give you? Coal. A lump of coal. So my grandparents, they had a coal furnace. So every year, every couple times a year, they would get the coal delivery. So they had readily, ready access to coal. So guess what I got every once in a while? I got some coal. <clears throat> right? But Santa Claus gives you coal, but here, God gave us the gift of Jesus. 
He just gives you more Jesus. He gives you more grace. And that's annoying. Right? Like, come on, just be, be, be mad at me. Stop giving me so much love and grace. All right, we ever say that? Probably not. It's kind of, it sounds weird, but that's what it is. And we give gifts at Christmas because it's a, it's a way for us to sacrifice a little bit, a little bit of ourselves to those around us because we know that Jesus is the greatest gift. Right? That's why we get excited. We should get excited about Christmas because the, real, the reality of Christmas is that that is the gifting to the world of Jesus Christ, the grace that we get salvation through. Right? All, the Christmas, all the good Christmas songs, they talk about the theology. And so now, speaking of theology, we come to well, how do whales, you talked about whales earlier, how do the whales fit into this thing? And medieval whales at that, right? So what, what's going on? So I listened to a podcast called uh, Gone Medieval. It's about medieval history. And it's interesting because what they do is they take stuff that happened in the medieval times and they see, they show us that what they did then still kind of is going on because of them today. Like eggs, hard-boiled eggs for Easter. That was, a, that was a medieval thing. But we'll talk about that during Easter. But the medieval church used the natural world around us, around people, to teach theology to its people. And so whales were used as a surprising symbol for the temptations of the devil. So the Getty Museum down in L.A., they have a lot of medieval manuscripts. And so they explain in one of the, there's some stories that go along with this, that, you know, English stories. But the whale is said to float at the surface of the water for some time. That's what this picture depicts here. That's the whale at the bottom and they have a boat who has now landed on the back of the whale. Because if you have a big blue whale, especially, they're big, it could look like an island, right? And especially if the woods are kind of floating. And so if you're tired from rowing across the ocean, you're like, oh, look, an island. Let's stop at the island, right? And of course, it's a little bit of, it's a little bit of fun, but the island entices the sailors to make their landing on the impression they're disembarking on a solid ground. And they get out, they build a fire, Maybe they hang out for a while, right? And of course, what does the fire do on top of an animal's back? Makes the whale mad. He's like, what's going on? Down to the water, down to the ocean he goes because he doesn't know what's going on. So he dives deep to cool its thick skin, which drags the sailors and their ship down into the sea. So again, the story that the whale is an unlikely symbol for the devil because he literally drags those under, under his power to hell. And so the whale's superficial resemblance to a haven refers to the falsity of the temptations of the devil. Right? Sometimes sin looks comforting, it looks inviting, but we know we're going to get drugged down because it's really not. Right? Sin looks like a nice place to rest temporarily, but you get trapped because it drags you down to your death. And so as we're sailing along the ocean of life, we have to learn to recognize what is a real island, right? what is a solid foundation, the Bible that Jesus talks about, and what is the whale's back that is going to change and drag you into the ocean? Right? And so when we're working, if we're on this ship and we're sailing along, we're rowing, so everybody who rows gets paid, right? we expect some kind of payment, right? We don't take a job just because we want to, a lot of times. We, we do need money to live, so... But sometimes money is not the only thing. We do get other benefits, which sometimes they're more important. But the question is, when you are working, what are you being paid? And so Paul says in verse 20, in chapter 6, he says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced from the, then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a much better deal than death. Well, we get eternal life from the gift. If we're working in sin, working for sin, all we're getting is death. All we're earning is death. We're earning bad fruit, essentially. Fruit we can't eat, maybe it just rots. Right? When we work a job, we earn and we produce things. We, we go to work to make a thing, to do something, produce something, and we get paid for that. But Paul is quick to point out that who you work for is going to determine what you earn and what you will produce. So if you live in sin and continue to do so, you are earning death. That is what you're saving up for yourself. This goes back to Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. Right? If you work, you can save your money in a 401k. You can just put your money into account for later use. And so we, we know this is what happens, but when you sin and all you do is sin, then you have no retirement plan. Right? You're storing up nothing but death, as Paul tells us, because you are working with no regard for righteousness. And so Prosper of Aquitaine, who was one of the church fathers, uh, you know, he wrote way back in, you know, in the early hundreds, uh, he says, He who serves the devil, he explains this passage, He who serves the devil is free from God, but he who serves God is free from the devil. As, an, as a result, it is apparent that a false liberty could have been had from a defect of the human will, but the true liberty could not have been received without help from the liberator. Right, so we understand this. And so people who are not believers, they are serving the devil and they don't even care about God. Right? That's the, the whatever. They make excuses or they tell you stories about whatever. But when you serve God, you are free from the devil. You are no longer touchable, essentially. You don't have to listen to the devil. You don't work for him anymore. He's not your boss. And they're not, therefore, you're going to collect your paycheck from God. You're not collecting a paycheck from the devil anymore. And we have this false liberty, right? Because it's a defect. We want to do what we want to do. That's, that's what happened with the fall. That is what it is. And we all do that in some form or fashion. But we couldn't reach out to God and just say, okay, I want to work for you now. But right? again, He has to hire you. We can't just show up to heaven and go, hey, I want a job. Okay, great, thanks. We're not hiring. Come back later. All right, so Romans 6, 20, 20. 22 and 23 says, But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Again, we're kind of reiterating that, but it's important for us to understand. You've been set free from sin. You don't have to work for Him anymore. You don't have to go over to them anymore and get stuff from them, because they have nothing to offer you. So now that we've been set free, we kind of see this in, in English you know, from what Paul's telling us. We have been set free. We have been given, given a new life. How do we actually do this, right? How do we apply this to our lives? And so here's our application. So first, right, as we, as we live our life, well, number one, we need to be alert to God's will and temptations. We need to be watching out for what God, God wants for us, but we also need to watch out for what the devil's trying to trip us up for. Right, those temptations. So you have to have a good defense to withstand the temptations in the world. And so this brings us to the Templar castles or this fort. So yesterday I watched an interesting show uh, on National Geographic. And so this guy goes to different places and he uses uh, LIDAR. So it's a radar type, type of situation. He'll scan the ground, all this other stuff. And then he'll build like a 3D model of what it probably looked like. And so he was in Israel looking at the Templar castles from the Crusades. And so what they found out was the Templar forts were built with some kind of maze inside to keep people running around in order to confuse them. 
So as, they're stor as people are storming the castle, they come to a place and say, I don't know if I go left or right. So if I go left, I keep running around and running around and running around. I've got to make another decision. Right? And so all the while, people can attack me from the top. Right? They can shoot arrows down or they can stab me from little windows or whatever. And they, keep me, and they keep you running around as long as possible. And they also try to bottleneck it to keep everybody who's in the fort safe. And they can either get out and you know, go out a secret tunnel or whatever they're doing. This is how we have to build our own fort. Your fort must be built on the bedrock of God's word. Right? It can't be just like a like a like a, a stick house like for the three little pigs where they could just blow it over, right? Because there's no real good foundation. Right? And so it has to be built on the bedrock of God's word. And so the enemy, you must have to make the enemy have to navigate through mazes of walls built from scripture. Right? That's your defense. And the scripture, all the while, other scriptures being used like arrows and spears. Raining down on the enemy, keeping him out of the heart of the temple, right? Out of your heart. And so why do we go to this trouble? Because we know that the price is what the price is that has been paid for you. And so that's the second part is that we need to know the price that God paid for you. And so this is Paul's entire message. The last several chapters of Romans we've covered. It's the central message. It is the gospel. Right? So Romans 5.17 says, If by... The one man's trespass, talking about Adam, death reigned through the, that one man. How much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ paid his life for you, each of us. Before you were even born, that's what Jesus went to the cross for. And we, we, we are very appreciative of the veterans because we understand that's kind of what's happening at some point where people are signing over their lives essentially. Right? We kind, of, kind of the saying is that people give the government a blank check for your life to do whatever it is. And we are very appreciative of that because people have to do that. Right? But that's what Jesus did. He wrote, he paid, he cashed that check for himself where God, God cashed that check through Jesus to pay for all the sins of the world. Right, so we have to understand that and really, not just on a, gee, that was nice level, right, but really get down to it. Like, that's the gift that he paid. That's what was done for us. And so these last two pieces, right, this is, this is really what Paul is telling us, is we need to know where we came from and we need to know where we're going. Like, I like archaeology and history and all that stuff and it's interesting because we can see what, how things progress and what things were, people were doing. But that's from a historical standpoint. From the historical standpoint of your life, that's dead and buried and gone. Like, we don't need to go visit the headstone, the tombstone, every once in a while to say, oh, that was the old me. No, that, that was it. That's, I don't care. Right? That's, I don't care who that person is anymore. I'm this person now. I'm going this way. Right? You were on one side of the chasm headed away, toward, away from God. You lived a life of sin and even if that's today, or you're talking to people this week, you say, look, this was you today. Tomorrow, you're different, right? Tomorrow, if you're converted this morning, that life is gone. There's no more. You're a new person today from this minute forward. Right? And then you are now immediately transported across the divide to God's side of the valley. Right? You're headed to a heavenly home. And you have a different reason to live, right? You're not just surviving, but you've been forgiven, and now you can thrive under God's freedom. Right? Because you're free to do certain things and you're free to do live your life according to God's will. So wrap it up, right? It's important that we know who we work for, what our pay is, right? Why are we doing this? We need to discern 
an island from a whale's back so we're not pulled down to the depths again. We just keep getting killed in the sin. But we need to, and we need to reconstruct or construct our fortress using blocks that God has provided us so that we can withstand the enemy's advances, right? We know that there's a constant battle. And they can see what flag flies above your fortress. Right? There's a, the flag of God is flying over all of our heads, essentially, if you could see it, right? That's, that's how we live. And again, this is easier said than done, but we use the scripture, we use prayer, we use church. When we come together, we talk about the struggles. We use all these things together to help strengthen us as, a community, as individuals in a community. That's the neat thing about Christianity, right? It's, it's individual, but it's also a community. And so as we go out this week, as you're getting ready for Christmas, right? think about this. And as people ask you about why you're excited about Christmas, tell them what this means for you, right? Jesus Christ has come to give us a new life. Through the baby who grows up to be a man, you know, he dies for our sins, right? So as the, as we, as the band comes up, right, think about that as we're getting ready to sing our last couple songs. So we'll transition. So you guys want to stand as the band comes up.